0: As I say every week, thank you for bringing the church into uh, this place. It's great joy to be able to gather. And if I've not met you before, my name's Jamie, and it's my joy and privilege to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. And I get to lead us as we continue in this Advent series called Echoes of a Voice. And so each week what we've been doing is we want to make clear that Advent is not the countdown to Christmas. Now, it's not bad to be counting down to Christmas, all right? It's exciting, and for some of us, mainly this guy up on the stage. It's panic-inducing because I haven't bought a thing yet, all right? But wherever you are on that, it is more, though, than simply the countdown. We celebrate, we look back, and we celebrate the reality of Christ's incarnation, his coming to dwell among us, that God moved into the neighborhood, and yet it is also an anticipation, a longing. Like our hearts long for him to come and to set everything right. That we know that there's brokenness and it's not just out there in the world like it's in here. We carried it in with us this morning. Frailty, brokenness, stress, anxiety, broken relationships, financial strain. Like there's all kinds of things and we're longing for Jesus to come and to set everything right. And so Advent is this invitation to remember that Jesus one day is coming back and he's going to set everything right. So we've been looking each week at these longings These particular, what we've called, echoes of a voice, or maybe another way to think about them as signposts. Things that God has given us in his grace that point to a deeper reality. And so we looked at this longing for justice, all right? And we want to see that, and we want to pursue that, and we want to be active agents of justice and of reconciliation. And yet we know that ultimately God is the one who's going to bring ultimate justice. But that longing, it's there to point us to something. We looked at the hunger for relationships. That hunger exists because... God exists in community, and we are created in his image, and so we need one another. We're not called to be in isolation. We looked last week at this quest for spirituality, that every single person is a worshiper. And the question becomes, are you worshipping the one true God, Jesus Christ, or are you worshipping idols? Are you worshipping something else, something in the creation that God has given as a good gift, but you've made it ultimate? And at the end of the day, that ends up enslaving all right. And so the invitation for us is to be rightly ordered in our worship. And this morning we're going to look at then this last longing we're going to talk about is this delight in beauty. That there's something that beauty evokes and does in us. That God in his grace, God in his design, even the way he's put the brain together of the two hemispheres and one is very... You know, kind of this this aspect of thinking logically and in order and all of this, and that can be important. But there's a whole other hemisphere of the brain, right, that kicks in. We're experiencing beauty and the creativity and the artistry. And both of those are part of God. What it means to be in God's image. And you may not consider yourself an artist, all right, but the reality is we are invited to be beauty makers in the world, to bring healing and redemption and reconciliation, and God invites all of us, regardless of your talent level. So if you're like, hey, I'm not an artist, I can check out. No, 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 the call for all of us. We are all creative beings, and we're invited to be co-creators with the God of the universe. He's the ultimate, and he's the ultimate source of beauty, as we'll see, but we're invited to experience that beauty and to take that beauty forward so I want to ask a few questions this morning we 'll start with this as we we'll get into our text here in just a moment but when was the last time that you were moved by beauty do you think about something that stirs your affections and your, your hearts that just that kind of wells up right men right now if you 're married you turn over turn over to look over to your girl right now it 's like every time I look at you baby like whatever right like you can go and do that but the reality is There is this sense, like we experience, maybe it's a sunset, maybe it's the beach, maybe it is the mountains, maybe there's just a good meal or time with friends, that there's something that just deep within us, it's like, oh, something's right. Like just for a moment, even though there's a lot of chaos and there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of confusion, we have these glimpses, don't we, of just beauty and harmony and there's just something in us that's like, wow, I want more of that. Well, that longing, that delight is meant to not be an end in itself, but to point us somewhere. And oftentimes we get these little glimpses. I want to read to you this poetry, this work by an author named Wendell Berry. And he wrote this short poem called The Peace of Wild Things. And he talks about what is, I think, a common experience, particularly over the last couple of years, where there is pain, there's stress. You might find yourself waking up in the middle of the night thinking about things that weren't on your brain when you went to bed at night, and then you're like suddenly like, what is going on? And what God does through the gift of beauty, through the experience of the beauty that is around us in nature. Let me read these words. He says this. He says, When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. And I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. And for a time, I rest in the grace of the world, and am free." He speaks of this experience, this encounter with beauty. And yeah, it's fleeting, and it won't always last, but there, is, there are these moments, these gifts that God gives to us. And so what would it look like to look at the beauty that we experience out in the world amidst the brokenness, to not deny that? but to have eyes to see the ways that God is at work and allow that to stir in us a greater worship of Jesus, a greater appreciation, to ask the questions like, where does this delight, this longing for beauty even come from? And so with that, I wanna invite you to look at Psalm 27 with me. If you brought a Bible, please turn there. You can also go to cplife.church on your phone right now and you'll see something you can click that says sermon notes and the text will be there as well as anything that's up on the screen this morning. But Psalm 27, one to six, I wanna read this. This is this wonderful psalm by David. As you'll see right away, his life is not devoid of pain. He's got hardship, he's got difficulty. We don't know all the particulars. He's gonna write about enemies and threats and all this. It could be any number of scenarios in his life. It could have been the time when King Saul was literally trying to put him to death. It could be when his own son rebelled against him and tried to put him to death. It could be just enemies that the nation of Israel faced and as David led them out into battle. We don't know the particulars, but we do know this. His life was filled with pain and heartache, ways that he sinned and brought that upon himself, ways that he was sinned against, things that took place, and just living in a broken and fallen world. And yet David is gonna speak to us So here he is penning these words thousands of years ago, and yet it speaks into our moment. And it reminds us of the invitation that we have to delight in beauty, and not the temporal fleeting kind, but the beauty that is found in the Lord himself. So here are these words. This is Psalm 27, one to six. David writes, "'The Lord is my light and my salvation. "'Whom should I fear? "'The Lord is the stronghold of my life. "'Whom should I dread? "'When evildoers came against me to devour my flesh,' My foes and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though an army deploys against me, my heart will not be afraid. Though a war breaks out against me, I will still be confident. Verse 4, I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple." For he will conceal me in his shelter in the day of adversity. He will hide me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high on a rock. Then my head will be high above my enemies around me. And I will offer sacrifices in his tent with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. So what we have here for David, for King David, it starts, I wanna start in verse four because it kind of summarizes here. This is the main point and then look at the things around it. But in the midst of hardship and all of this, David has this longing like he is bent on a pursuit of beauty, all right? You see that in verse four again. He says, I've asked one thing from the Lord. It's what I desire to dwell in the house all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord, seeking him in his temple. Is so if you were to answer this question, like, hey, what would you do if you had one wish? You were granted one wish, all right? And if you're right now thinking, well, I would ask for unlimited wishes. Okay, we get it. But besides that, right, if you had one wish for David, what's so fascinating is of all the things that he could wish for, of all the things that he could long for, of all the things that must have been on his mind and his heart, like, Lord, get rid of this trial. Get rid of these enemies. To cause those armies to be defeated That's not what's at the forefront of his mind. In fact, the way that he deals with those ever-present realities is he pays attention to what does his heart long for and what he longs for, what he's made for. Again, as he says this, this one thing, if he could sum it up, this is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord, he wants to experience the presence of God. He knows that his world, when he's just focused on self, becomes very small, very closed in, very suffocating. And yes, that can be about the circumstances, the things that he's facing, but anytime we make the story about us, that's where we end up. There's no joy, there's no life. We pursue things that are fleeting. And so David is like, listen, I've tried those things, what I know, what I long for. He says, I wanna dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And then here's this idea here, gazing. This steadfastness that he's just gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. That he knows that there is ultimate beauty. And ultimate beauty is found not in the things of this world, as good as those things can be, as wonderful as those things can be, as impactful as we heard even in the Wendell Berry poem, like I love to go and get time outdoors. If I can really be honest, I love to get time in the outdoors that's not in Florida, all right? Like to get in the mountains and it stirs something in me and there's a peace. But we also know that that stuff can be fleeting. So David knows, how am I going to deal with the circumstances he doesn't pray that his enemies would go away. He recognizes that even in this one case if they would happen to, there's going to be another round, there's going to be more pain. He knows that there's going to continue to be trials. He needs. He understands I've got to put myself like in the presence of beauty in the sense that to know that there's a bigger story, that there's something that he's being invited into. J.I. Packer, in his great work, Knowing God, said it this way. He says, what makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and it lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? I don't know all the particulars of your story, but I know this. No, enough of the human condition. No, not everything in your story is going the way that you want it to right now. But the thing that you and I possess, that no one else possesses, as, as Packer talks about, right? The Christian has in his way that no other person has. It's this understanding of who God is, to know him, to gaze upon his beauty. And David knows this is what his soul needs. Throughout the scriptures, we are taught that we become what we behold. And it's not that if David beholds God, he's going to become God himself, but he's going to be molded and shaped into his image. So we want to be shallow, distracted people? We just behold our phone over and over and over again, right? Not anti-technology, but I'm just saying, like, we behold lots of things, and it doesn't lead to the life that we want. And David knows, I need to behold true beauty, ultimate beauty. And even as he experiences the beauty of the world, he knows that those things are meant to point him to God. And then within this, so in that pursuit, there are some promises that we see in verses one to three. So if you look back at that, David is reflecting now in light of who God is and this bigger story that he's part of, there are these promises then. It's not just abstract beauty. It's that God himself is the embodiment of beauty. One theologian put it this way, like literally all the characteristics, all the things, the attributes of God are summed up as that God is beautiful. So David's reflecting on this, and when he reflects on that, then these, he's able to write these words. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? He asked that question, whom should I dread? The Lord, he says, is a is stronghold, or the anchor of my life. It's as if David is grabbing a hold of his heart right now and saying, hey, you could look at the enemies. You could look at the people that are encamped around me right now. You could look at those that are seeking to come upon me and devour me. And those things can create fear. But he's doing this work in a way for him that was looking ahead to this story, believing the promises of God and the good news that we have as people living post the resurrection of Jesus, as we know the first advent has happened this arrival, this coming of Jesus, this one who lived a perfect life, the one who died in our place, the one who conquered Satan's sin and death by rising again on the third day. And we know that there's a second arrival. There's a second advent that's going to come when Jesus sets everything right. Like we know more of the story that David did. And yet David, even with his limited knowledge, it's like he's grabbing hold of his heart and saying, like who do you have to fear? Who do you have to dread? The Lord is your light. The Lord is your stronghold. He is working on your behalf. He's gospeling, you could say, his own heart. And the reality for you and me, every moment of every day, like when we wake up, we can either pay attention to the circumstances that are going on in our life or we can... Train our heart and our affections a bit by saying, "No, I need to remember the story. I need to dwell in the presence of the Lord." When David says, "I desire to be in the house of the Lord forever," I don't think he means an unending church service. That may not be heaven; that might be hell. I'm not sure, right? Like, um, that's the reality of it. He's not saying that's what it's going to look like. He's just talking about, "I want to be in the presence of God to behold Him." We become what we. Behold, and so in this then he says, though an army deploys against me, my heart will not be afraid. The reality is there still is an army that hasn't gone away. Though a war breaks out against me, I will still be confident. And so his confidence is in the God of the universe, the one who embodies true beauty, the one who is ultimate beauty. So I think another question we have to ask ourselves is this, is your confidence in beauty beauty that is fleeting? So we know this, right? I told you a moment ago, like, I love to be able to get outdoors, love to be able to get time in the mountains. Like, that is refreshing. I'm reminded of God's grace and mercy and his grandeur and all of that. We have to recognize that those moments go away. Right? Maybe you visited places like the Grand Canyon you stood on the rim and you just felt small in the universe and just amazed. Uh, but you don't live there all the days of your life. That there are moments that we have that are just gifts. Maybe it's a meal with friends and you just, man, I wish this could go on forever. But you know that it, it can't. And so we can either recognize those things as gifts, thank God for them, allow them to encourage us to serve their purpose, but not make them ultimate, or we can get into the bad habit and the practice. It's what we looked at a bit last week with idolatry of taking these good things and these really beautiful things and these beautiful moments, these beautiful relationships, and make them ultimate. And when we do that, those very good gifts are crushed under the weight of that. That relationship can never save you. That job can never save you. That retirement can never save you. we, We look at these things, Having Christmas go just the way you want. like that, it, We hope for all those things to be good, but at the end of the day, there's some beauty that is fleeting, and the Lord is inviting us into something more, because if we just keep grasping for the things that are fleeting, like ultimately, it won't lead to life. It'll end up destroying us, and those very good gifts, we end up destroying those things. There's an artist that maybe you are familiar with. He goes by the name Banksy. I don't know if you've heard of him before. Um, He is a... He's a bit of an enigma. He is a man that has not shared his true identity. Uh, He has become well known, particularly all over the world now, but started in in and around London, Um, street art, otherwise known as graffiti. All right. And so he would um, do these works, very provocative, a lot of times making some political statements, kind of this subversive artist. And he didn't want anybody to know his true identity. And to this day, people continue to speculate. But he's become very, very well known, and you've perhaps probably seen some of his work. In one of his pieces of work, um, somehow there were prints of it that were made, and it went to auction. All right? And the particular work is called this, The Girl with Balloon. Maybe you've seen this before. Um, and at this particular auction in October of 2018, it sold for $1.4 million. All right, so this, this guy, that his art is about, like, not giving in all the capitalism and all that sold for 1.4 million. Okay, so there it is, um, so somebody buys this. Now, what was so fascinating is 1.4, you know, and the auctioneer there said going once, going twice, sold for 1.4 million dollars, all right? And the moment that the gavel struck down, within two to three seconds, the people in the room there, this crowded art auction, began to turn their attention toward the frame that held this Banksy work of art. And they began hearing, beep, 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 and then... In horror, they looked as the painting began to, the print began to slide down and apparently go through a paper shredder that was built into the frame of this work of art. And the auctioneer said, my friends, we've been seed. And here he had some time before arranged this, that should it ever go to auction, should it ever sell, the moment that it had somehow it was queued up, that he had built into the very frame a paper shredder with this alarm that would trigger, and it would ruin the piece of art. So somebody's on the hook for $1.4 million, and half of it is intact, and the other half is shredded. Now, that story, as crazy as that, that is, it's this picture of, like, imagine that person who's bidding on it, and like, I'll go 1.1, I'll go 1.2, right, like, they're, they're doing all, all of that, and eventually they have this moment where it's, like, declared, it's theirs, and they're thinking, finally, even this elusive artist, it's hard to get a hold of his art, like, it's in my possession, it's mine, I've got this, and this piece of art that is beautiful to be able to enjoy, it lasted for about two or three seconds, and then it got destroyed. And when you and I take the good things of this world and think this is mine to possess and I gotta hold on to it, we've made something ultimate and in the end, not only does it get destroyed, it destroys us. And so we are people walking around thinking, I'm gonna claim this, I'm gonna do this, and we take beauty and we allow it to be an end in itself. And we need to recognize that the things in this world, like it's temporal, it is fleeting. So yes, enjoy the mountains, enjoy the beach, There's nothing wrong with even seeking to make yourself beautiful, right? To work out, to be in good shape. You can do all of that, right? There's nothing wrong with it. Steward well your body. But can we also admit that there's a fleeting nature to all of this? It doesn't matter how many Instagram filters that you use, like one day, no matter the Instagram filter, the amount of spinach, the personal training, gravity wins, folks, right? Like That's just the reality of our lives. And eventually, we die. And so when we make these good things ultimate, it, just, it, it, it's nonsensical. And the Lord is inviting us into something much, much more. And so what we see in verse 5 as we continue is there's this provision. And it's not just provision of beauty. It's provision by beauty himself, the embodiment of beauty that is the Lord. And so Psalm 27 verse 5 says this. And look at who the active agent is. He says, for he will conceal me in his shelter in the day of adversity. And so I think we have to stop there for a moment. David doesn't say, he will conceal me from the day of adversity. He says, no, no, he will conceal me, he will protect me, he will guard me in the day of adversity. Because the adversity is always going to come. Until Jesus comes back and sets everything right, there will be trial. David might get rid of this round of enemies and this battle, but there's going to be another one. And so David is saying, listen, the confidence that I have is not that my circumstances are always going to go well. My confidence is not just in experiencing this bit of beauty and this bit of beauty and just accumulation of those moments and hopes that it ultimately satisfies. He's like, no, I know that the beauty that I gaze upon, the Lord himself, like he will conceal me in his shelter in the day of adversity. So it is coming and he will hide me under the cover of his tent, and he will set me high on a rock. David is saying, I don't know if the circumstances will change, but I do know this, there will be protection, there will be provision from the one who is this embodiment of beauty. If we were to go back a few thousand years ago, there's another prophet by the name of Isaiah, and this prophet, one that we often read during the Advent and the Christmas season, the one who spoke about, the one who would come in his name would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, right? Like all of these things, he speaks of God with us, Emmanuel. Here's the beauty and the wonder of this Advent story, of this story that we're part of and the bigness and the grandness and the upside down nature of it all is that God is the ultimate beauty, And if you were to go and read through Isaiah 52 and 53, it would tell the story of this ultimate beauty entering into the brokenness of our world. And this one who is the embodiment of all beauty was so disfigured, you could say lost his beauty in such a grotesque way that people turned their faces from him. When we think about what Jesus endured on the cross, that the brokenness and the darkness that he was born into, the confusion around his birth story, Right, the ways that he would have been mocked and misunderstood, the ways that despite the crowds following and people then would eventually walk away, the fact that he lived a sinless life and yet people, they betrayed him, that eventually the flesh is ripped off his back, a crown of thorns put on his head, his body completely disfigured, him eventually being nailed to a Roman cross. Isaiah, hundreds of years before the event, was speaking of the beautiful one becoming so disfigured becoming so vulnerable. We think about being covered by Jesus, that Jesus himself was stripped naked, made vulnerable so that you and I could be sheltered and protected and covered and welcomed in, that we could have our beauty restored, the beauty that we lost ever since Adam and Eve said, ooh, that fruit looks beautiful. I'll take that lesser beauty, thinking that it was ultimate. And that story has been playing out. And so the God-man Jesus enters in and in essence says, I will strip myself of all beauty, So that you could be made beautiful. Isaiah 53 says it this way. Who has believed what we have heard and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. This is our God. The beautiful one enters in and apparently doesn't have any beauty. He's not attractive. He's not the one that people would thought, that's clearly the Messiah. Isaiah continues, yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. That the ultimate beauty came down, was despised and rejected and mocked and tortured, beaten and ultimately died in your place and in my place so that we could be restored, so that we might have the beauty that we were originally created to have and that we, in turn, could be agents of beauty sent out into the world as people that are meant to put on display the beauty and the wonder of God. As we read earlier, even in the lighting of the Advent candle, you think about these themes that the Apostle Paul picks up on in the book of Romans Referencing back the prophet Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet that bring good news. You may not think of yourself as an artist or a creator of beauty, but the reality is this. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have the most beautiful story ever. And we are being built together as a holy temple that Jesus himself is building us as his church. And he's doing something that the book of Revelation in chapter 3 would say, we will be these ornate, beautiful pillars in the new Jerusalem. Like the idea here is we are beautiful people because of the work of Jesus, the truly beautiful one, who left all of that in order to restore us. And now we get the privilege. We get to tell the Advent story. We get to be people that put on display in the brokenness, in the pain. We're not naive to it. It's not like David is looking out there and saying, oh, the enemies all magically disappeared. No, they're still there, but we get to actually participate in beauty because of the work of Christ. So we'll close with this. Look with me at verse six. This participation, and David writes this. He says, then my head will be high above my enemies around me. So the enemies are still there and I will offer sacrifices in his tent with shouts of joy, and I will sing and make music to the Lord. David says the enemies are there, the threats are still there, but the reality of the situation is he knows the thing that he's made for is to worship with joy. His joy is not dependent upon the enemies going away. His joy is not dependent upon this relationship working out or this person getting healed or me getting this certain amount of money or whatever it might be. His joy is found in gazing on the beauty of the Lord, caught up into that story. And then do you notice how it ends? I will sing and make music to the Lord. He begins to create beauty. He begins to participate in beauty. And even if you're somebody like me, who's one of his biggest fears in life is that my mic is on during the singing, right? Some of you know that. There's this invitation, though. We get to worship. We get to use our voices. We get to use our talents. We get to use the resources that we have to bring beauty into the brokenness. And maybe it'll be in the beautiful voice that you have or the instruments that you can play and the art that you can make. But it'll also be in you just having conversations with people and reflecting the beauty of Christ, the way that you would love people unconditionally, the way that you would sacrifice for them. These are all invitations to showcase the beauty and the wonder of God. I've been reading through this new book by Kurt Thompson called The Soul of Desire. And most of the book is an exposition of Psalm 27. And he's a Christian psychologist and in it he talks about our need for beauty. It's it's worth reading, he will explain it far better than I can, but just even what it does to the, the brain. The way things even just get rewired a bit as we encounter beauty and how we need it, and we long for it, we're made for it, but yet in all the ways that things fall short amidst this brokenness, and yet when we realize the story that Christ has invited us into amidst our brokenness, it's not to deny that, there's this invitation to go and to participate in being agents of beauty, to be co-creators with the ultimate creator. And in it, he tells a story of this man, I'll probably get his name, I'll probably pronounce it wrong, but uh, Vedran Smalovic. And so you see him here, this is a picture of him. This is from 1992. So if you were alive in 1992, here's what was happening around that time, all right? Um, there was this conflict in, around Bosnia. In particular, this picture comes from Sarajevo. And this man, his career was as a cellist, um, and there was incredible conflict and bombings and sniper fire and all these things. And one of the most beautiful, iconic buildings in the city was destroyed. And 22 people lost their lives. And this man, in the midst of the rubble and the pain and the brokenness and just not knowing what to do, did the only thing that he knew to think of. What, what was his thing to offer to the world? Well, he's a cellist. And So each day, each afternoon at the same time, for 22 days straight, in honor of the 22 people that lost their lives, there was a beautiful piece of music that he would go in his tuxedo, dressed up, grab his cello, and go and sit amidst the rubble, and the brokenness and the pain that was ever present while there still was sniper fire that was happening all around him. And it was his way of saying, I know the world is broken, but what kind of beauty can I bring amidst it? Can I help remind people that there is a bigger and a truer story? And commenting on this, Kurt Thompson then says this, because this gets to our calling and our invitation. We think that beauty is found in the concert hall and all of this, and it can be. And we wouldn't look for it in places like that. But the church, my friends, where we're called is the rubble and the brokenness and the darkness. And to go and be like this man playing the cello in that particular spot to bring beauty into the brokenness. Thompson says this, "'But we don't go looking for beauty in a war zone. "'That's not typically how we think. "'We play the cello in a concert hall, "'not the rubble that remains "'in the wake of a mortar shelling. "'It would not ever occur to us "'to search for beauty in a minefield. "'No one would enter such terrain "'expecting to discover, embrace, "'and be transformed by beauty. "'How would it be possible? "'We would be too distracted "'by the fear of the obvious danger.' Moreover, it would be sheer lunacy to consider that same minefield as a construction site for an outpost of beauty. When we're thinking, our limited vantage point From a human perspective, that all makes sense. No, we wouldn't go and do that. But he continues, he says this, no one knowingly walks into the ruins of one's dwelling place and the crosshairs of sniper fire with the express purpose and expectation of creating beauty and putting it on display. And then here's what he says, and this is where it ties so beautifully to this Advent season. But as it turns out, this is exactly what God has done in the incarnation And whether he knew it or not, the incarnation is what Smolovich was echoing in Sarajevo. He's putting on display the incarnation that we in this season, we celebrate the fact that Jesus entered the rubble and the brokenness. It's not just things that have been done to us. It's the things that we've contributed to, to the rubble and the conflict and the pain. And Jesus enters into that, the truly beautiful one who leaves everything, makes himself completely vulnerable, opens himself up, stripped naked, does all of that so that you and I can have our beauty restored, so that you and I can be who we were created to be and now be invited to be the church, this beautiful community that the Lord is building. It's not perfect, but the Lord is doing beautiful things if we would open ourselves up to it. And so close with this. This is why the Apostle Paul would write these words, to a church in Ephesus to remind them, my friends, you are saved by grace. The word beauty can also be understood as favor or grace. We need encounters with the grace of God to gaze upon the favor, the grace of God that we see in the face of Jesus Christ. So Paul says this, for you are saved by grace. You've been saved by the ultimate beauty, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift. So lest we think for a moment, look at me, I'm a Christian, I've got this down, i figured this out. No, 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 you only deserve death and separation from God. That's all that we deserve, but it's God's gift. So not from works that no one can boast. And then look at this. He says, for we are his workmanship. The language here is you are Christ's masterpiece. Individually and collectively as the church. You're his work of art. You are beautiful. The church is beautiful because of what Christ has done. That he is sanctifying his church. That he's molding and shaping us more into his image. And he's created us as his workmanship. We are no longer to be viewed As these ones who lack beauty, we are his workmanship now. And then he says this, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do, for us to walk in. Church, we have an opportunity as the masterpiece of God where we're having our story, our beauty restored by him to participate then in beauty, to go into the places, the rubble, to co-create, to showcase what it looks like to live under the rule and reign of God as his workmanship, as his prized possession with new identities, and we do the work that he's called us to do. This is telling us that there is work that God has prepared in advance. There is work that he has for you, and there's such joy to be found, not only individually but collectively as the church It's what I'm looking forward to in 2022 as God grows us together that we might walk into these works that He has prepared for us as He continues to form us and mold us and shape us into this masterpiece, into this work of beauty, into this work of art that He's called us to be. So let me pray for us. I want to ask you to consider a few things. For one, take some time as we continue in this worship service. What do you need to confess to the Lord? What things have you pursued that are fleeting? And then to celebrate the reality of the ultimate beauty that entered into our world, that is Jesus. And then here, you've got a commission, an invitation. We get to co-create. We get to be agents of healing and of redemption and reconciliation, pointing people. We get to carry the good news together. So we're gonna respond in communion and singing after this, but let me pray for us, and then I'll give us some instructions as we continue. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your mercy, your grace. We thank you for the sending of your son, Jesus. And may we have just an increased appreciation and recognition for that gift, even as we think ahead towards Christmas this week. And God, I pray that that would continue. And I pray as we experience the beauty and the wonder that's found in this season, I pray that it wouldn't be an end in itself, but it would point us to the ultimate beauty that is you. And that we would long for nothing more than to just delight in your beauty, to delight in your grace, a grace that you continue to pour out on us. And so we thank you for the new identities that we have. Thank you that you have made us new creations. Thank you that you are taking away what is ugly and broken and tarnished and you are restoring us, renewing us. And so, Jesus, we thank you for the beautiful work that you've done. And so I ask, God, that you would work in and through us for your glory and for our joy. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.